Welcome to Below the Line, a podcast by the Northwestern University Law Review. I'm Emily Rosnowski. I'm Emma England. And we're both editors of the Northwestern University Law Review Online. Today we're talking with Professor Daniel Croxell about his essay titled Cheers to Central Hudson, How Traditional Intermediate Scrutiny Keeps Independent Craft Beer Viable. Professor Croxell is an assistant professor of lawyering skills at the University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law, where he also teaches a course about craft beer law. We hope you enjoy the episode. So today we're talking with Professor Dan Croxell about his essay titled Cheers to Central Hudson, How in- Traditional Intermediate Scrutiny Keeps Independent Craft Beer Viable. So thanks for joining us, Professor. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Great. So how did you first become interested in craft beer law? So I, I've always been a, a fan of craft beer. Um, early on, my, my brother was a home brewer, and, and we really started getting into it in the early 2000s. And then I ended up... Um, Coming to law school and being a litigator at at DLA Piper um, for some years, and I was practicing, you know, the litigator's life there. And he called me one day in about 2009 and said he was going to open his own craft brewery because his life circumstances had changed. And and he said, "Oh my gosh, this is a total regulatory nightmare." And I was like, uh, "Yeah, sure," in all my free time, but um, but I did, and, and we ended up getting him open, and. Um, it really started taking off. This is about 2010. And then some of his friends who were trying to open breweries started calling me and uh, I saw an opportunity there. And I opened up my own law firm that was uh, designed to focus mostly on, on representing craft breweries. Wow, that's great. So I was, I was doing that for a while. And then this professor job opened up. Um, I was hired. I'm, my primary duty is to teach legal writing. But during the interviews and everything, I mentioned um, my craft beer law background. And people weren't really sure to, how to react, I don't think. Um, I kind of had felt a little defensive, maybe like I had to convince them that it's an actual thing. But in California, you know, we have approaching 900 breweries in Sacramento, where the law school is. We have about 80 in the greater area. And it was a dollar contributor to the U.S. economy last year. So it really is a thing. And eventually, I got, gained the support of a lot of the the deans here at the law school, Dean Schwartz, Dean Moylan, Dean Colatrella, have been very, very supportive of teaching the class, and it it really just took off. And the student, you know, filled up really quickly, and students have been really into it, and they formed their own craft beer law society here at the law school, and it's just been a, a really great ride. I feel like the luckiest guy on the planet. So, could you tell us more about what you teach in your craft beer law class? Yeah, definitely. So, it's kind of a I feel a little bad for some of the students because, you know, people react positively when they see craft beer law. They think, oh, my God, I'm I'm totally going to take that class. But it is a bit of a regulatory nightmare (laughs) environment. It's a very antiquated law that was created, you know, in the 30s and then amended throughout uh, since then. And it's not designed for this particular industry that we're seeing such expansive growth in now. So we focus a lot on the California regulations. We do some comparative analysis with some other states. Uh, We discuss a lot about trademark and intellectual property. It's very, very important in the craft beer world right now. And what a lot of people don't understand is there is a lot of constitutional law that goes into this in terms of, uh, you know, speech regulations, which I'm sure we'll get to. 
um, and other things like local practice, employment law, entity formation, um, you know, the enforcement arm of the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board, et cetera. So it's a fulsome class. And, uh, you know, it was in a truncated format to start. And then I taught a summer school class that was a bit longer and there's still plenty to do. So I think the school's been very supportive and we're going to keep going with it. It's been really, really great. That's great. Um, so I want to get into your essay now. Um, so you're mm-hmm. talking about tied house laws and just kind of mm-hmm. at the outset, for those who might not know, what are tied house laws? Okay, so a tied house, um, I guess we'll start with that. A tied house is a manufacturer or excuse me, a, a retailer that is in some way beholden to a manufacturer. Okay. And the common example was the saloons from from days of yore. Uh, <laughs> they what would happen is a manufacturer would um, either purchase a saloon or they would buy a saloon, a new bar, or they would, they would somehow get that, that saloon on the hook. And then that saloon was essentially beholden to push as much of that manufacturer's product as possible. And so what a tight house is, is that retailer who is um, required or beholden by a manufacturer to move as much of that manufacturer's product as possible. And so, you know, the states have um, since regulated that pretty heavily and and made it such that a retailer generally can't have any kind of um, relationship with a manufacturer to prevent things like uh, vertical and horizontal integration, as well as uh, to promote, ostensibly to promote temperance. Now, in your article, you focus specifically on the California law restricting advertising. So could you tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. that law? Yeah. So California's uh, alcohol... um, Statutes are in the Business and Professions Code, and the one in the, in the article is Section 25503H. And what that section does is it prevents a manufacturer from paying a retailer uh, for advertising space. So it's kind of weird because the manufacturer can give a retailer, you know, signs to some, you know, as long as they fit within certain uh, parameters, they can give them to a retailer, but the retailer can never accept payment or anything of value is the term can't accept anything of value in exchange for advertising space. And so that, that law was actually challenged um, in the past, in the, in the 90s, in that case called Act, Act Media. And um, the Ninth Circuit applied the traditional intermediate scrutiny from Central Hudson and ended up upholding the law. So this was an interesting uh, regulation or statute because it certainly has First Amendment implications when you're telling someone what they can and can't do for, for advertising. And um, a friend of mine who is a constitutional law scholar, you know, told me about Sorrell, a case that I'm sure we'll talk about, mm-hmm. and how that might have done away with Act Media, and that could uh, end up raising a challenge. And sure enough, it did in the retail digital network case. Do other states have similar laws to this California restriction, or is California unique in its regulatory environment? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, most states actually have these kinds of prohibitions. Okay. Um, it's the general consensus among the states, as far as I've looked, and I've looked pretty carefully, that um, allowing manufacturers to pay for advertising or to exchange things, anything of value for advertising, goes against um, the purpose behind a lot of the alcohol regulatory uh, schemes because it would allow those with deep pockets to essentially pay to play. Okay. And that's kind of one of the main goals of these statutes is to prevent um you know, really large-scale breweries from essentially buying favor from um, from retailers and, in an attempt to sell more and more product. And so with the explosion of craft beer, 
and the the complicated relationship that exists between really big breweries and really small breweries, um, it has become more and more important for those smaller breweries that these laws stay in place so that there is no pay to play. I mean, there is, and it happens, and it happens pretty regularly, but it's not legal. And so these statutes kind of help small craft breweries stay on an even playing field with the, with the larger ones. So now these restrictions on advertising obviously limit commercial speech, um, which we know receives lesser protection than non-commercial or political speech. So we were talking about Sorrel earlier. So how did Sorrel Mm -hmm. call this framework into question? Yeah, so Sorrel, um, it struck, the Supreme Court struck down a a Vermont statute that restricted the sale and use and and disclosure of pharmacy records uh, for marketing purposes, though. But what the case did was instead of just jumping right to Central Hudson and that intermediate scrutiny, it kind of started down a content and speaker-based type analysis. So traditional intermediate scrutiny cases uh, for commercial jump to Central Hudson and its four-prong analysis. But uh, Sorrell did something different, and it really started going down this content-based um, analysis, which is not something that, that you would expect to see in a commercial speech type case. And it actually relied on a bunch of non-commercial speech type cases. So um, what it did was it said that heightened scrutiny, in quotes, heightened scrutiny should be used for any content-based commercial speech restriction, which is different than what Central Hudson requires. Right. And this heightened scrutiny thing is what really started making people nervous, at least um, some of my friends in the in the beer industry and, and my, my friends who study constitutional law. It... it uh, it could really have an adverse effect on uh, on regulations like the one we were talking about earlier, because if, first of all, Sorrell didn't uh, define what it meant by heightened scrutiny. And so that led to some confusion. And if it meant strict scrutiny, that would probably be really bad for these kinds of, of regulations for a couple of reasons. But the the test, the, the case basically called into question whether Central Hudson, whether it's four-prong intermediate scrutiny test was still good law. And this particular uh, regulation we're talking about, Section 25503H, had already survived a direct challenge under Central, Central Hudson. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking about that and thinking, okay, well, if it survived the Central Hudson test, but now there's something new that requires a heightened scrutiny, then this test is going to be subject, this statute is going to be subject to more rigorous scrutiny, which could eventually lead to um, larger manufacturers being able to pay for advertising space, which would put an even greater squeeze on independent craft beer. So how have other circuit courts responded to the decision in Sorrell? Yeah, so as far as I haven't looked in the last uh, month or two, but um, there has been a little bit of of not necessarily confusion, but certainly not uh, agreement on what um, Sorrell did. I mean, some some cases said that that out of the Eighth Circuit, for example, there's a 1-800-411 pain referral case that that's talked about a new version of the test that, that said something along the lines of that when a court determines commercial speech or content or speaker based, it then needs to it then needs to go to Central Hudson. So mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Is that Central Hudson plus more or is it not? Um, the Fourth Circuit it pretty much recognized that heightened scrutiny is something different than um, than the Central Hudson test, and that was a case called educational media. So. Some courts have, have looked at this and said, well, it requires more. And so far in those cases, they said, well, it doesn't really matter because it fails the central Hudson test anyway. <laughs> and so yeah. they said, we don't need to decide as a matter, you know, as a matter of law, whether central Hudson is still applicable. 
because this one fails it anyway, so it wouldn't survive in any heightened version. And that really came to head in the Ninth Circuit with the right. Retail Digital Network case. Yeah, so tell us about, about Retail Digital Network. Right, so Retail Digital Network uh, involved a liquid crystal display um, manufacturer who, who would lease advertising space in retail outlets. And the retail outlets wouldn't necessarily contract with, with uh, Retail Digital Network because they were worried that they would violate this, this law where they were, there would be payments for advertising of alcoholic beverages. And the district court took a look at it and said, well, Sorrell didn't actually talk about, didn't actually create a new stricter test, and it was already challenged in ACT Media, so they went ahead and affirmed under, under those bases. But a three-judge panel uh, from the Ninth Circuit then found that Sorrell actually created a heightened scrutiny, something different, something new and, and more strict, and it said it was, um, Sorrell is clearly uh, irreconcilable with Central Hudson and ACT Media, and sent it back and basically forecasted that this uh, statute, 25503H, would probably not survive whatever the heightened scrutiny was going to look like. And then on Bonk, the Ninth Circuit took it up and it said, uh, said that Sorrell did not create a heightened scrutiny and that Central Hudson still applies. However, the on Bonk panel, uh, court did say that um, California's temperance justification for these kinds of laws uh, might actually be weak and might not survive even under Central Hudson under a, a under a fresh look. So wow. it still a little bit remains to be seen. Yeah. But um, the, the Ninth Circuit at least went in favor of um, upholding this this particular statute. And in my view, uh, it's been very that's very helpful for craft beer because craft beer really can't um, compete with the larger breweries, larger manufacturers if pay-to-play becomes legal in some form or fashion because they just don't have the deep pockets. And people are surprised to hear that most craft breweries produce under 1,000 barrels a year. And when you're talking about, you know, some of the really large, what we call craft breweries, like um, Boston Beer Company, Sam Adams, is producing somewhere around 6 million barrels. Wow. Um, most craft brewers are under 1,000. <laughs> so it's uh, you can see that they're, they're – really couldn't compete with some of the really large breweries that you might be thinking about if pay-to-play became legal. And California just had a really interesting um, bill that came through. It was uh, sponsored by AB InBev, which owns Budweiser. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to allow a manufacturer to give away 10 cases of glassware to any retailer Hmm. uh, per brand. So that was challenged a little bit by the California Craft Brewers Association, and they, they got to a smaller number, I believe. It, I believe, I'm not sure it was five that was in the final version where a, a manufacturer could give five cases of glassware to a retailer for free. Mm-hmm. That would be an exception to the Tidehouse laws. Wow. But Governor Brown vetoed it, <laughs> and he vetoed <laughs> it because he said he, thinks it, he said he thinks it will give large mayor advantage over those small breweries. And if you think about that, 1,000 barrels the number. They can't go around to their retail accounts and give away, you know, free glassware. Glassware is expensive. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, you can imagine who could, who can afford to do that, and they, they probably would like to because they're losing market share. But the small breweries can't do it, and so you know, these kinds of attacks against these regulations that prevent pay-to-play are, are fairly common. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think we're up. I'm sure we'll see another attack on California's temperance justifications um, in the relatively near future. Great. Thank you so much. So, Professor, now to our most important question of the podcast. Do you have any craft beer recommendations for our audience? Well, 
Um, I'm most familiar with California craft beer. Uh, whenever I travel, I always look for the most local thing I can find. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to go drink the same beer somewhere else where I can that I can drink out here. <laughs> but out your way, I really like Surly. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Surly. I it's am in not. Minneapolis. Let's check it out. It's a they make a beer I really like called Todd the Axe Man. <laughs> it's great. Uh, my my favorite one out here is obviously also going to Brewing Company. My brother sure. owns it. It's wonderful. Naturally. Um, but I've I've been moving uh, beyond your IPAs and I've been dabbling in <laughs> sours and things like oh, that sure. and, and different styles. But yeah, I think uh, overall I would go with also going to Brewing Company. It's definitely the best beer out there. All right. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have to make the trip. Um, well, Professor, thank you so much for talking with us today. And thank you so much again for publishing your essay with us. It was such a joy to work on. Oh, thank you so much. It was, you guys were really great. I would, uh, I would definitely do it again. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode of Below the Line was edited by Jonathan Byron and hosted by Emily Rosnowski and Emma England. Special thanks to Professor Dan Croxel, David Edinger, Ken Zabler, Katrina Peters, and Hillary Cheddar Ames. Our music is June Funk by Finn Johnston. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.